Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, do you think Angela Lansbury is solving murders in heaven? I hope so. With a hot cup of tea. I just was imagining the phrase solving murders in heaven came to me and I was like, that's... It was perfect. So funny. <laughs> I love to imagine if there's like a neighborhood in heaven, like just set up so that people who like to... I can't... I think about if there were heaven, what it would be like often. Uh-huh. It's like, does everyone ride bicycles? I'm just convinced everyone in heaven has a bicycle and it's pink. <laughs> uh-huh. You know what I mean? With a little basket on it and you go around and it's kind of like a big commune and everybody's got stuff and the you- basket can fit. It's like Mary Poppins's carpet bag. Yes, it fits everything. I like that. This week, we're joined by Beto O'Rourke, Megan Gailey, and Tian Tran to take on the following questions. Where has voter fraud landed now? What is at stake in the Texas gubernatorial election? Have you ever been the poor friend? And who will defend Hocus Pocus 2 to the death? All this and more right now. All right, let's get right into the news. Let's talk about the latest scandal in voting. Alyssa. Happening again. Where is it happening now? Fat bear, Aaron. There's voter fraud with the fat bear. Okay. I'm going to need more information. Okay. Fat bear week was rocked by scandal over the weekend after organizers in Alaska uncovered voting irregularities that were meant to skew the results of a pivotal semifinal. Okay. Okay. So fat bear week just concluded, right? Yes. And Fat Bear Week, they 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 put out a bracket. In case listeners don't know Fat Bear Week, we're big fans of Fat Bear Week. We love they Fat They put bears. out a bracket. And, and fans of the Fat Bears get to vote on matchups. It's like March Madness, but with whatever Fat Bear you like better. Um, and then that proceeds until a Fat Bear champion is crowned. But in a semifinal, you're telling me that people were skewing the votes. Who was trying to skew the votes and for who? Well, Aaron, it's all very complicated, but I'd like to say that Katmai National Park announced on Twitter, showing themselves to be a model of democratic transparency, that there were issues in its virtual ballot box, which was stuffed in Sunday's contest between Mammoth 747, who went on to win, and the blonde-eared Holly. Holly has won in the past, right? She has. I'm not going to lie. I had Holly in my bracket. I had Holly going all the way. But But 747 doesn't have a name yet. 747 is like an upstart... 747's been around a little while, but still 747. That's a Um, great name for a fat bear, by the way. A 747. An airplane name for a big (laughs) fat bear. I love it. But the poll workers caught the fake votes in a timely fashion. So it was just online people trying to, like, rig the system. Honestly, this is going to sound 
I, I thought when I first read about the Fat Bear Week voting scandal that the the votes were going to be in favor of allowing a male bear to win because I've been so poisoned by the internet that I'm like, of course, they're tanking the powerful woman. But no, people were were in the tank for Holly and I need to check my internalized biases. That's exactly right. Even though, you know, I was pulling for Holly, but only fair and square. Yeah. Uh, and then last year's champ was Otis, correct? Yes. Right. And Otis ended up losing. But still living a good life. Exactly. There are no losers in Fat Bear Week. No, just winners. They're they're all full of salmon and ready to go to sleep. <laughs> uh, yes. As long as they're eating and getting fat, they are winning. And we are winning for being privy to them. Um, there's more news, but I really am excited to get to our interview this week. What do you say we do that? 10 out of 10. Let's go. Okay. And welcome back. Alyssa, we're pretty excited about this one. Today's a big day. Today's a big day. So listeners, as you know, Alyssa and I have been doing this podcast together for over four years, more than 200 episodes. And out of all of the interviews we've had, we've never interviewed a man before. Ever. No offense to men. No offense nope. to men. There's just a lot of podcasts out there that feature primarily dudes talking to each other. Um, however, today we are making our first exception for a man who, if elected governor of Texas, could make life better for millions of women and families, both in the Lone Star State and nationwide, because everybody loves somebody who lives in Texas, even if you don't live there yourself. I'm speaking, of course, of Beto O'Rourke, a former member of Congress and founder of Powered by People, an organization that fights for democracy and democratic victories by registering and engaging with voters and current candidates to become the first Democratic governor of Texas since Ann Richards left office in 1995. Beto O'Rourke, welcome to Hysteria. It's so good to be with you, and it's such a big honor. And um, <laughs> I thank you for allowing me to be the exception to the rule and for doing it for all the right reasons, um, given <laughs> the, the number of women under attack in this state right now. And on the other side of that, really the great things that we could do, not just for people in Texas and not just for those who love people in Texas, but given the outsized role that Texas plays in our politics and in our country's future, um, I don't know that there's a more important moment in a more important place than what's happening now in Texas. So thank you so much on behalf of all of us here. <laughs> well, you broke a glass ceiling today. Um, <laughs> your opponent, Greg Abbott, has been governor of Texas for eight years. And his tenure, to be perfectly frank, reads like a new verse of We Didn't Start the Fire, written specifically about Texas. So can you walk our listeners through a few of the crises that Abbott either directly caused or ineptly botched? It's a long list, as you said. It's been eight years. And, you know, um, it was 19 months ago when the temperature dropped in Texas that the power grid, which he had been warned about because it had all these underlying vulnerabilities that had not been fixed, absolutely failed us. And the lights went out, the heat stopped running, water stopped flowing because it was frozen in the pipes for millions of Texans. Um, 700 people that we know of died, you know, hypothermia. Uh, died of carbon monoxide poisoning in their garages, died burning up in their homes as they set fire to their furniture, trying to keep their kids warm. Uh, he pegs the price of electricity at its highest allowable rate. 
for days. You know, gas soon starts trading at 200 times what it had sold for the day before. His biggest campaign contributors uh, end up making billions of dollars over the course of, of five days. And after all that happened, the kicker is the grid is still not fixed. And we now are all paying higher electricity and utility bills as a result. So, so from that, the, the most basic you know, job of government, you know, literally keeping the lights on and making sure that we're warm in our homes in the energy capital of the world, uh, no less, to um, crises that we have in our child protective services system. This is the, the system that oversees 32,000 kids who are in foster care in Texas right now. It's a system whose vulnerabilities, again, the governor was warned about years ago. Um, since 2020, 100 children have lost their lives in this system. Hundreds more have been abused, have been raped, have been trafficked. It, it's really awful, and it's happening to the most vulnerable among us. Add to that that we now lead the nation in the number of school shootings, gun violence, the leading cause of death for kids and teenagers in the state of Texas. This week marks 20 weeks since 19 kids and their two amazing teachers were killed in their classrooms by a guy who in Texas could legally buy not one, but two AR-15s and hundreds of rounds of ammunition at the age of 18 and walk into that classroom and take the lives of all those kids. Five of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history have happened in the last five years. And the only thing that Greg Abbott, our current governor, has done is make it easier for people to buy a gun, people who shouldn't have a weapon to begin with, and carry them openly on our streets. And lastly, and, and I think um, you know, maybe most galvanizing and maybe most horrifying for the millions of women and girls in this state is a total abortion ban that he signed into law last year that just went into effect last month. It begins at conception. There's no exception for rape or incest. And, and look, effectively and functionally, there is no exception for the life of, of the mother. Um, this is happening in a state that leads the country in this crisis of maternal mortality, three times as deadly for black women. And we absolutely know that this is gonna cause more suffering and more death in the state of Texas. So all of that and more is happening, but I'll just say this in, in conclusion, the way that Texans are responding to this is incredibly inspiring and fills me with optimism and, and a lot of uh, confidence that we're gonna win this on, on November 8th because people are not accepting it and they're not submitting to it and they're not succumbing to the temptation to despair. They're taking action, they're showing up, they're getting registered to vote, they're committing themselves to knocking on doors and they're gonna do what it takes to win this election, overcome these challenges and get Texas on the right track. So you were in a punk band when you were younger, and one of the most punk rock things we've seen in politics, which normally, you know, punk and politics don't really go together. Um, but you confronted Governor Abbott at the you're Uvalde out, press out conference. Sit down and don't play this No, he should get his ass out of here. This isn't the place to talk to the show. This is totally predictable. Sir, you're out of line. It's on assholes like you. Why don't you get out of here? Can you walk us through what made you decide to confront him that way and how it felt when the words were coming out? And do you think more progressives should embrace that sort of confrontation? I, uh, 
I was in Uvalde um, the day after that shooting. I, I had raced to get there as, as quickly as I as I could. Heard that the governor was holding a, a press conference and just decided to go. I wanted to hear what he had to say. I'd been at press conferences or at public meetings that he had held uh, after El Paso when 23 of my fellow El Pasoans and human beings were slaughtered in a Walmart on the 3rd of August, 2019. Um, I'd heard the press conferences after Santa Fe High School, after Sutherland Springs, after Midland Odessa, after all these mass shootings. And in each instance, you know, he committed to doing something that would make it less likely that this would ever happen again. And then it happens again. And so I came to listen to him and I wanted to know what is going to be different this time. And his opening words were, it could have been worse. Um, which for any of the parents that I've had the chance to meet and listen to and work with, and now I'm following their lead as they make sure that this doesn't happen again, um, there there couldn't have been anything worse that he possibly could have said. Um, He tried to kind of blame it on on mental health care issues when we're 51st in the nation in mental health care access. And the month before Uvalde, he took $211 million out of the state's mental health care budget. You know, he... Uh, lauded law enforcement for their extraordinary response. We now know there were hundreds of members of law enforcement who for more than 70 minutes were on the other side of an unlocked door while kids were bleeding to death alongside their teachers. And as he finished, I just felt compelled to stand up and to say, look, the, the time to stop the next mass shooting is right now. And, you know, I I wish I had stood up in El Paso in 2019 or Midland Odessa the month after that or Santa Fe High School before then. We've we've got to confront those in power who are in positions to do something about this, who could take common sense steps that, look, not everyone's going to agree on every possible solution, but raising the age to 21 which the Republican governor of Florida did in 23 days after Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, a universal background check, which every gun owner uh, for the most part can agree on, a red flag law, which we know will save lives. On this much, Republicans and Democrats can agree. So yeah, I I felt compelled to stand up and to confront him and and to do something to, to change the course that we're on. Otherwise, look, I've got three kids who are in the public schools in El Paso. They're, they're now sophomore freshmen uh, at El Paso High, and, and one is a sixth grader at the middle school. And, and they know full well that unless we do something different, um, they're just as likely to be met with the same fate as those kids in Uvalde or children all across this state. So as a parent, as a human being, as a Texan, um, you know, I, I want to make sure that we're doing all we can with what we have where we are. And that's certainly how I felt in Uvalde on that day and every day since then, for that matter. Beto, we have seen ad after ad of Trumpers who are now supporting you. What are the biggest policy issues driving Trump voters to your campaign? Well, I'll tell you what, I I listened to your interview with Chloe about um, reaching out to rural voters. And uh, a lot of that resonated with me because I'm going to these extraordinarily rural, very remote from the centers of power, counties and communities across the state of Texas. And she has it exactly right. You got to show up. This is not something that you can phone in 
or or beam out there through social media or or a television ad. You gotta you gotta listen to people with whom you may not agree on every issue, who as you're talking with them may have a Trump hat on and a Make America Great Again T-shirt, but who are as, just as human as as I am, just as much a Texan as as anyone else, and they care just as much about their kids and their schools and their jobs and our future as as anyone else. And so in doing that. Um, I discovered that we've got so much more in common than would otherwise divide us. So school funding, you know, it's bad in El Paso. I think the teacher here on average is underpaid by about 7,500 bucks against the national average. But you go to Montag County in in rural North Texas, that teacher's down $16,000 a year. She's working a second, maybe a third job to make ends meet. When I show up and say, listen, we are going to prioritize school funding and uh, stop this effort to uh, move your public tax dollars into private schools through vouchers. I get heads nodding and people saying, hey, I like this guy. And you know what? The governor has never shown up in my community, people will tell me. And and you're the first statewide anybody, Democrat, Republican or otherwise, to show the common courtesy of coming out here to listen to me and find out what moves me. 16 hospitals have closed down since Greg Abbott has been governor in rural Texas. When I go to Bowie, Texas, and uh, I knock on the door of a guy and he says, my wife had a stroke. And that hospital that was two miles away from us closed down. And luckily we were able to airlift her to the next county and we saved her life. But um, honestly, I just this week met a young woman on our college tour who told me that her grandmother who lives in Montag County died because they couldn't get to a, a hospital in time. These are deeply personal, emotional, nonpartisan issues. I mean, your grandmother's life, I mean, it transcends everything out there. And if I'm not there to show up and listen and learn about that, then we're not making these connections. So healthcare, um, school funding, legalizing marijuana, having the backs of our veterans and making sure they get connected to the care that they need here in, in Texas, ending the extremism. And look, something that that maybe you ask about, Democrats may try to curtail their message or change course when they're in rural Texas. If I try to leave a meeting in Canadian Texas in the Panhandle or Spearman or Dalhart or Dumas or Pampa, and I don't talk about abortion, someone's going to stand up and say, hold on a second, Beto. Um, you, You have failed to address the most important issue for my life and my daughter's life, the fact that I can't make my own decisions about my own body in my own future. I have found that even that issue is universal across the state of Texas. But if I don't show up to listen to and work with the people who are going to win this election, then not only have I not earned their votes, they're, they're not going to knock on those doors or reach out to their fellow Texans. So I have found that the divides of partisanship, of geography, of really anything else are, are really so shallow. And they are transcended by showing up and being there with people. Not easy to do, in a state like Texas, but thankfully we love doing it and, and we've got the, the ganas to, to get out there and make it happen. And um, we're fortunate that we've got 95,000 volunteers across the state who are helping us to make it happen. In 2018, Ted Cruz beat you by about 2.8 percentage points. And right now you're breathing down Abbott's neck, but he's still ahead in the polls. How do you win this time? We're doing a couple of things differently. One is employing data, which I didn't use in 2018, um, in an electorate that might produce, you know, 10, 11 million voters, um, having a better understanding of who those voters are, 
where they live, um, what their history has been in the past. I'll give you an example. Um, half a million Texans in 2018 voted for Greg Abbott for governor. And those same 500,000 Texans voted for me for U.S. senator. So we split the votes of half a million people the last time we were each on the ballot. Those are persuadable swing voters. I absolutely want to be on their doors. Data helps me to find them and make sure that I'm using the most persuasive message possible. You know, another thing that I probably in hindsight could have done a much better job of in 18 was really prosecuting the case on Cruz. We intentionally ran a very aspirational, very ambitious campaign. Nothing wrong with that. But, you know, I, I think I wrongly assumed that everyone either loved or hated that guy. And there are a lot of people who are working so hard at a $7.25 an hour job. And in fact, they're working two or three of them. They're raising their kids. They're taking care of their folks. They just don't have time for this stuff. And as a candidate, I needed to make the case and connect the dots, and I didn't. So with Abbott, I'm going to make sure you know that you are paying more in property taxes, more in electricity bills, a 200% increase in your phone bills because he vetoed the universal service fund that underwrites those phone bills in rural Texas. And the greatest driver of inflation is your current governor. The school shootings, that's your current governor. This total attack on the women of Texas, a complete abortion ban that gives more rights to a rapist who can collect a $10,000 bounty suing the family of his victim in the state of Texas. That rapist has more rights than does his victim. That is Greg Abbott. The exodus of school teachers, Greg Abbott. So making sure that people understand the cost and consequence of that guy being in office, in addition to the ability for us to do great things, world-class schools, best jobs in America right here in Texas, and the ability to see a doctor and restoring protection for the right to privacy so every woman makes her own decisions about her own body, her own future, her own health care. That's very different than what we were doing in 2018. And then lastly, I, I just think we have the extraordinary good fortune of a very motivated electorate. I remind people, I was just at Texas Tech in Lubbock yesterday and said, look, do not be deterred by, for example, this total abortion ban. Abortion was just as illegal in the state of Texas 50 years ago, but no one rode to our rescue, not the rescue of the women of Texas. It was those women who rode to the rescue of the rest of the country. Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade, um, Linda Coffey, her attorney, Sarah Weddington, her other attorney, these three young Texas women prevailed upon an all-male United States Supreme Court and won that right to privacy that stood the test of time for nearly half a century. Texas women won the way back in 1973. They're going to win it back in 2022. So um, th there's something really extraordinary happening in Texas right now, led by Texas women. And I'm just very grateful, very lucky to be a part of that right now. Let's talk a little bit more about SB8, because it's kind of the vigilantism it encouraged is something that we couldn't have even imagined. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about the current state of abortion access in Texas and what you would do as governor to safeguard reproductive rights? And then also, I've been having trouble finding out how many people have actually been sued under the law. Do we know how many people have been sued under the law? Yeah, Aaron. So this attack on reproductive health care freedom as you know, is, is not new to Texas. It's been going on for more than a decade. And it is absolutely connected to that maternal mortality crisis that I mentioned earlier. As more reproductive health care clinics have closed down across the state, 
especially in a state that is dead last in the nation in access to health care in these underserved communities. And they can be in the dead center of Houston, Texas. They can be, you know, in Hudspeth uh, County, uh, in, in the more rural and remote parts of the state of Texas. Not only has it become impossible for a woman to get access to an abortion, but it has been just as impossible to get access to a cervical cancer screening, a family planning provider, or a doctor or provider of of any kind. There, there are so many counties in Texas where literally there is not a single medical provider on the books that a woman can go see. And I mentioned it is three times as bad for African-American women in, in the state of Texas. All of this exacerbated by the most extreme abortion ban in the country that is then compounded by um, this vigilante law that says that Anyone, and not just anyone in Texas, anyone in America can sue anyone in Texas who assists any woman in getting access to an abortion and collect a $10,000 bounty. And that anyone could include the rapist who impregnated that woman in, in the first place. And as you said, it'd, it'd be hard to cook this up stranger than fiction, and yet it is our reality in this hot house of extremism in, in the state of Texas right now. And it's a harbinger of what is to come if we don't change course. Justice Clarence Thomas has shown us that next is the right to contraception and same-sex intimacy, which means potentially a revival of our sodomy laws in the state of Texas, uh, marriage equality. All of that will come under attack in these ingenious, innovative, extraordinarily creative ways that extreme Republicans have brought to bear here in Texas. And I'll give you an example of what that future could look like. The so-called House Freedom Caucus, which is the kind of extreme fringe edge of Republican legislators in Texas, have already begun sending demand letters to employers in Texas who are funding the out-of-state travel for their female employees. Um, in other words, warning them, if you assist those women who work for you to travel out of state to make their own private, personal healthcare decisions, we will come after you. There's another proposal to check the travel documents of women of childbearing age should they try to leave the state of Texas. Um, you know, I, some people laugh this stuff off, but but I think our, our failure to take seriously the threats that we saw or heard coming for years and decades saying, and, and I'll say I'm party to this, no way there'll be a total abortion ban in, in the state of Texas. Just, I know they say that stuff, but that, that could never, ever happen. And so we, we must take seriously everything that is happening right now and realize that no victory is ever final, not even one like Roe versus Wade in 1973. And this fight will never be over. And that can sound exhausting that this fight will never be over, but we, we have to find a way that it is inspiring to us, that, that we're in the fight for the lives of our fellow Texans, our fellow Americans, and there's no higher calling or honor. And there can be joy in that fight. And it's all of us in, all of us together. And we're going to be able to do some extraordinary things here in Texas, not just for those under attack here, but really for the country, given the role that this state plays in American politics. What can the governor do? Like, I know that the, the state itself is, you're probably going to be dealing with a Republican legislature. So what could you do as governor to restore some of those rights to Texas women? 
there are a number of things the governor can do. One is to stop the bad things coming down the pike. So the governor has the the veto power. Um, so all these proposals coming, whether from Justice Clarence Thomas or the House Freedom Caucus in, in Texas, as governor, I'll be able to stop them. But the governor also has a lot of leverage with the legislature to bring members to the table. Um, as you probably know, we we only meet as a legislature once every two years and then only for 140 days. The governor can uniquely bring that legislature back into session and calls the tune, defines what that agenda will be and can continue to call the legislature back until we get the desired outcome or something close to the desired outcome. You've seen that used for... Um, Bad purposes by Greg Abbott um, going after transgender kids or CRT or to weaken our voting laws. I'd love to use that for good purposes to restore the rights and freedoms to our fellow Texans, especially to women for their bodily autonomy. And one might think that that might be a very tough task, given how conservative or Republican this state is supposed to be. But when asked, Texans, 86% of whom say they they strongly oppose the governor's total abortion ban. 78% of Republicans in Texas strongly oppose the governor's total abortion ban. So there's a lot more room for consensus than people might otherwise think. And, and as you all know, the, the number one imperative for every Republican or Democrat, for that matter, in office is to win re-election. Whatever else they may say, they want to make sure that they win. And the shockwave produced by having the first Democrat, the first pro-choice candidate since Ann Richards won in 1990 to win this office is going to change the political calculus in this state and what is possible and what is potential. And lastly, none of this can happen if, if we don't win. And so the alternative is to stay on this crazy train that that is racing towards the far fringe of extremism and is costing the lives of our fellow Texans, whether it's those kids in these classrooms or women and girls across the state of Texas. This really is a chance for us to get back on the right track and to do the right thing. And I'm confident we can bring the state together in order to make it happen. Pedro, one of your absolute best surrogates, Willie Nelson, is a big <laughs> advocate for legalizing marijuana, which anyone who listens to this podcast knows I'm a fan of. How motivating of an issue do you think it is for Texans to legalize marijuana? And what other social policies are vital to accompany the legalization? Very motivating. Uh, very motivating uh, among young people, which is what I would have expected and assumed, and it's been confirmed. Um, but I, I can't tell you how many times um, someone's come up to me, you know, 78, 85, 90 years old, and kind of in a whisper pulls me aside at one of these town hall meetings and says, hey, um, you know, I didn't hear you talk about marijuana, but I have fibromyalgia and it is just horrible. I, I, I can't eat. I can't sleep. My symptoms are terrible. The drugs they prescribe just screw me up uh, nine ways to Saturday. But when I use marijuana, um, I feel better. I can eat again. Um, I'm able to sleep. What are you going to do about this? Um, veterans who pull me aside and say, look, the VA will prescribe me an opioid and I don't want to take that shit because I can become addicted to it. I've seen folks I've served with die from this, but using marijuana makes me feel okay, but I'm a criminal in the eyes of the law. Beto, what are you going to do about this? So uh, I, I now at every event say, look, 
when we win, we're going to bring this state together to make marijuana legal for, for all of those people and for all of those reasons. And also just for consenting adults who just want to be able to get high and not be locked up for doing that. But I also talk about this side of the dynamic, which is that though all Texans, you know, uh, of all races, of all ethnicities use marijuana at the same rate, disproportionately, it's going to be black and brown Texans who get stopped by police, who are frisked, who are found in possession, who are arrested, who are incarcerated, who upon release now have to check a box saying they have a conviction on every employment application form. It becomes close to impossible to get student loans or small business loans. Really, their their options are severely narrowed and constrained, really only owing to the color of their skin. And so in addition to making this legal, we must expunge the arrest records for anyone who served time for possession of a substance that's already legal in so much of the rest of the country. This country locks up more of its own than any other on the planet. This state locks up more of its own than any other state in, in the country. Disproportionately, um, those serving time are there for nonviolent drug crimes like marijuana possession, uh, and they are black and brown. I, I was in East Texas in a rural community talking to a black barber who said, Beto, do you know how hard it was for me to get my barber's license? Because in 1972, I was found in possession of pot. How screwed up is this? I mean, this guy is just wanting to uh, be able to run his business, hire other people in the community. And we are holding him back right now for, for no good reason. So it makes all the common sense in the world. And, you know, politically, in terms of what's possible with a Republican legislature, we also know that Republicans like getting high just as much as Democrats <laughs> like getting high. So th- there, there's going to be the political consensus to do it. <laughs> yeah, they, they just feel worse about it after. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Um, Beto, you've been endorsed by Harry Styles. Gotta say, I'm jealous. I wish Harry Styles would endorse me for anything. Um, (laughs) And you were at his concert in Texas. And a lot of big-name national figures have thrown their support your way. So we also know that Texans are famously, let's say, resistant to the perception that outsiders are messing with their state. So how do you accept and embrace the support of celebrities while making sure that Texans know you're in this for them? You know, Going to that Harry Styles show at the Moody Center in in Austin, um, that place is packed with our fellow Texans, right? And to have his support and to get that push from him was really just wonderful. And I can tell you that in the following days, as I went to college campuses in Nacogdoches at Stephen F. Austin, you know, Axum Jacks, or up at Wiley College in in Marshall. Or just as I'm walking down the street in in Houston, so many young people who really weren't plugged into this campaign or really this race or maybe didn't know there was an election taking place in Texas or the issues that are driving the turnout and the decision, um, they're taking notice and they're now in and they're curious and they're coming out and they're getting registered to vote. So that was a huge boost. And I'm so grateful to him. And I'll tell you what, I had a chance to meet him briefly backstage. And, you know, of course, I I thanked him for inviting me to the show and um, for his support of us. And what so surprised me was that he had watched the debate um, that we had just a few days before. And he said, you know, brilliant job in the debate. And, you know, whether he saw it or or, um, saw a clip of it, how cool that that he's (laughs) watching and paying attention. But I think he is for the same reason that, that we're talking right now, that there's probably no state that has a greater bearing on this country's future 
on the issues that matter most. Voting rights, reproductive health care, freedom, gun violence. I mean, you name it, it, it is right here in, in Texas. And he he's well aware of that. But you mentioned Willie Nelson. And I don't know that it gets more Texas than Willie Nelson or the chicks, <laughs> formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, that I just saw in, in the Woodlands. You know, to have Natalie Maines up there on the stage, you know, has such an amazing Texas pedigree of these extraordinary musicians from Lubbock and the and the Panhandle, um, you know, throwing her support behind us as well. Casey Musgraves. I mean, so so the list goes on. But w- whether you are a, a big time performer, whether you are your neighborhood leader, whether you're the student government president, whether you're just a voter out here in El Paso, and we just had a great event at the University of Texas at El Paso last night. Um, to have your support means the world to me because this is really kind of the defining moment of truth for Texas. And what we do at this moment will determine our future and define us in the eyes of history and in our eyes of our kids for forever going forward. And I want to make sure that we come through. And again, the way that everyone's meeting this moment by standing up to be counted and doing their part, whether they're an entertainer, an athlete, a voter, uh, you know, another politician, it's really pretty inspiring. And it's it's cause for hope and optimism at a time that we really need cause for hope and optimism, given the, the darkness that has descended on this state. So I'm, I'm grateful for all of them. Uh, well, as a Californian, I got to say, if you get elected, Governor Newsom is going to have to redirect some of his trolling budget away from <laughs> Texas. He's going to be able to put up more billboards in, in Florida, <laughs> Maybe one in South Dakota. We'll see what he does with that. Um, So, Beto, we like to end on a positive note. How are you recharging out on the trail? This is such an appropriate question because I just (laughs) got back to El Paso um, last night. And we did this event that I just mentioned at UTEP. My mom, who's just amazing and uh, we just discovered was diagnosed with a very serious cancer and is undergoing treatment and oh, chemotherapy and so sorry. lost her hair. And no, you know what? She She's amazing. And she is so strong and so much stronger than I thought. But she came out to the event. It's the first public thing she's been able to do in, in months. And she looks so strong and so good and just made me so proud sitting next to my sister, Charlotte. Uh, my wife, Amy, and her kids were there. And then all of these folks in El Paso who I love and I've grown up with and have supported me and I've supported them. Um, you know, here in my hometown, after being on the road for weeks in what has just been a, a brutal schedule, brutal for all of us, by the way, not not me, for, for everybody who's running this race, running so hard and no complaints. Uh, I love the, the number of communities that we get to visit, the size and the breadth of this state, the number of people who are turning out. But, uh, you know, it it can kick your ass. And so coming back home, waking up in my own bed after being gone for so long, going out on a run with my son Ulysses and uh, his his friends, Angel and Miles and and Amy and our dog Artemis this morning, um, being here in my living room. um, It's just, it's great. So I'm, I'm absolutely able to recharge here. And I'll be working from home for a couple of days. And then we're, we're back out on the trail. It's hard for me to believe this as I say this to you, but it's 27 days until this election is decided. 27 days. And I, along with tens of thousands of people in this state, am going to give this everything 
that I've got. And I'm just so confident that we are going to come through at the end. It's not going to be easy, right? Um, and it's going to require something extraordinary from all of us. But given what's at stake, there, there really is no other option. Um, and I know that from every person who's approached me and talked about what this election means to them in personal terms, um, the tears that have been shed of, of pain, of suffering, and also of joy. And, and folks who, who just realize that they're doing the right thing at the right moment in the right place. And beyond what it means politically and electorally, personally for so many of us, um, th- this just could not be any more urgent or more important. So I, I feel so grateful to be back here at home and to continue these next 27 days starting from here. And very, very honored to be on your podcast and to have the chance to talk with you and to reach all of your listeners. And through you, I want to thank all of them, uh, so many of whom have contributed or supported or signed up to volunteer, those who live in Texas and even those who are outside of our our borders in other states who are um, beaming in their love and support and encouragement. It means the world to us. And I just want to say thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. O'Rourke, thank you so much for being the first guy we ever interviewed on this podcast. And let your mom know we're rooting for her. Yes. Um, we're, We're thinking about her and best of luck. Thank you. Thank you both. Okay, so it's October. We love spooky season. Everybody knows this. It's our thing. This is week two of our Witch of the Week, where we highlight female characters in folklore that are sometimes evil, sometimes good. This Witch of the Week is great. Sometimes complicated. Sometimes complicated. This is a complicated one. Alyssa, do you want to walk us through this week's Witch of the Week? Erin, this week's Witch of the Week is Dear Woman. Deer Woman can trace her origins to many of the eastern woodlands and central plains Native American tribes like the Potawatomi, Creek, Omaha, Ponca that came to Oklahoma, although her legend extends even into the Pacific Northwest. She's associated with fertility and love, but when crossed, has quite a dark side. Most commonly, she's depicted as the mortal victim of a savage rape. That is terrible. Her body being found in the woods next to a sleeping fawn who lay down beside her so that she would not die alone. Well, that was nice of the fawn. Uh, Thank God for the fawn. Since her attackers went unpunished, the gods grant her wish for justice, whereby she is reborn as half human, half deer. Don't we wish we all could be? (laughs) In this guise, she lured her former tormentors into the woods unaware of her true nature. When they noticed too late that she had hooves instead of feet, she had trampled them to death. Yes. Afterwards, she lived on, continuing to punish those who would prey on feminine innocence. The legend is meant to show that attraction does not a proper pairing make and that men ignore or usurp the power of women at their own peril. To recognize the truth the story conceals is to save oneself from misfortune. To ignore Mm. the moral is to proceed inexorably into the death dance with Dear Woman. Ooh, that's spooky. In the words of Neil Young, long may you run, Dear Woman. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know what is a book that contains a Dear Woman type figure that I would recommend to all our listeners? What? If you like spooky books, um, Stephen Graham Jones is this great uh, Native American writer. And in 2020, he put out a book called The Only Good Indians. And Dear Woman and Justice 
play a huge role in it. And it is a creepy, creepy book. And I highly recommend it. It's great. He's a great horror writer if you like spooky books during spooky season. All right. And that was our Witch of the Week, week two. Stick around next week for another Witch of the Week. Excited for that. But first, let's take a break. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I, I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, (laughs) not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount, text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode of Hysteria is brought to you by Viore. Need the perfect Mother's or Father's Day gift? Check out Viore Performance Apparel. Drawing inspo from the coastal California lifestyle, Viore's products inspire others to live vibrant, active lives. I love that they're calling this the coastal California lifestyle. I will embrace that instead of what I thought it was, which was the I only want to wear comfortable clothes lifestyle. Yeah. I have. I refuse to be uncomfortable if I want to be productive. I refuse (laughs) to be uncomfortable, but sometimes I have to look like I belong in a respectable place lifestyle. Which is like yeah. Viore is perfect for it because they the clothes look fantastic. They fit great. They are so comfortable. I lie down in mine all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, Erin, the women's performance joggers. They have a slim but relaxed fit and are designed with dream knit stretch fabric. I love my joggers. I've slept in mine. I've slept in them. Really? You don't get hot? No. 
They're very like on oh. a, it's like a couch nap. You know, you have like a oh yeah. You've got like maybe a half an hour in the afternoon. You're like, ooh, I've got a like small break. I'm very tired. I'm gonna just like lay down for 20 minutes. It's yeah, perfect, perfect for couch okay. napping. Joggers. I love the leggings. I can work out in them. I can do my errands in them. I can wear them with a proper top to a business meeting. It is not a problem. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you probably could. Just put yeah, a, a totally. blazer and like denim shirt, denim, denim shirt, oh, blazer, yeah. leggings. So easy. 100%. And of course, the men's core shorts. They have a classic athletic fit, falling just above the knee, while the Sunday performance joggers are made from recycled performance stretch fabric. I got my dad some men's core shorts. He wears them to mow the lawn. It's perfect. He is like, I think my, my dad is one of those people that just like beats the crap out of his clothes. He'll wear them until they're. They look like a security blanket that a 30-year-old yep. still has where it's just like a ball of string and you're like, um, Our dads are the same. Yeah, yeah. But um, my dad has had his for like a couple years now. And I think I, I saw him wearing them the other week when I met up with um, family on a, on a short weekend trip. And they still looked great. It was like, Dad, your clothes still look new. <laughs> so fancy. Viore is offering Hysteria listeners 20% off your first purchase. Get some of the most comfy and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash hysteria. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash hysteria. You'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash hysteria and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Welcome back. Alyssa, I really want to talk about like the idea of rich friends. Please. And in order to talk about having rich friends, I'm going to bring in two of the poorest bitches I know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I I have no idea how rich or poor you are. First off, LA listeners, don't miss our first panelist at the Dynasty Typewriter on October 22nd for a 90-day fiancé tell-all comedy show, Tian Tran. Tien, hello. What else have you been hiding? What else have you been hiding? Okay, yeah, you know what? I'm 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 a member of the 90 Day Fiance reality TV show family, wow. and I'm finally going to be coming forward with my husband. <laughs> <laughs> and his name is Jeff. Jeff. In what country are men named Jeff? Yes, Jeff. J E P H. <laughs> We're going to be airing out our relationship woes. (laughs) I'm really excited about it. If you have ever seen it, we're like a Rose and Ed relationship dynamic. Mm, Wow. Okay. Okay. You know that Rose is like a supermodel now. Is she really? Yes. And a lesbian. Oh, yeah. Rose is thriving. And a lesbian? A lesbian and a supermodel. Oh, yes. But we knew that during the season when she was with Ed, that she was a lesbian. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, rounding out the panel today, you can listen to our next panelist on her own podcast, Megan Fun of Sports, best podcast name. Thank you. Truly the best. Where she, you know, makes fun of sports. Megan Gailey, welcome to Hysteria. Thank you so much. And Tian, all I have to say to you is whoever is against the queen must die. (laughs) I don't know. It's a quote from a, oh, just, I mean, the well of characters. Is that from 90 Day Fiance? Oh, yeah. Wait, who Hmm. was that? Um, Colty. Colty. Vanessa? Yep. Vanessa. Yeah, okay. Okay, I need to watch some episodes to get some gems like that. She said that she was not happy with Deb in that one. Now I remember. Yeah, okay. She said that to a mother that she lived with. Whoever was against the queen must die. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a scene where Rose straight up just goes to Ed, you're ugly. She does. That happened. Yes, yes. You know, one thing about, you know, we can all agree that our immigration system is horrible and needs to be reformed to make the whole process more streamlined and easy. But on the other hand, one downside of that would be an end to 90 Day Fiance. (laughs) Incredible. Right. Like, I think TLC is fundraising against immigration reforms. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So. Yes. Vote yes on K1. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Well, we are talking kind of about something that dovetails with this a little bit today, and that is um, when there is a wealth disparity between you and your friends, and and more specifically, when your friends are richer than you are. So, uh, Tian, I'm going to start with you. You're in showbiz. (laughs) Do you have, like, rich friends? Have you, in different parts of your life, had rich friends? Like, in your mind, you're like, these are my rich friends. And what kind of rich were they? When I was younger, like college, I was definitely, my family was like solidly middle class, but I went to Boston College and I think that really blew my mind to the turn. Like I had rich friends in college and they were like very rich. Like I believe, not believe, I knew this, but one of my, (laughs) I believe one of my friend's dads was like a venture capitalist and like had so much money and like they had a family house that was like on the ocean in like a very like secluded area in Maine. And we visited there. And I remember being like, oh, this is too much money. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, you can own a part of the coast. This is, you can't, this is way too much. Um, And so like all throughout post-college as well, like I was doing comedy and wasn't making a lot of money and everyone was getting married and having like weddings that weren't in the same city as where I was living, which I think should be illegal. (laughs) And so I, I honestly actually didn't end up going to a lot of my friends' weddings because of like finances, like could not actually pay to get to those weddings. Now being in show business and being, you know, this is my first time on a TV show. I am making more money than I ever have. And it's really blowing my mind a little bit and trying to like figure out what that looks like. Like I'm at a place now where I'm, you know, go grocery shopping and I'm like, I will buy like the jar of pickles, you know, like I'm just (laughs) like, (laughs) I'm thinking about money in a different way and just trying to navigate it. And, you know, like I'm on a show with people who have a range of wealth (laughs) that you may know of. Um, (laughs) And it's really interesting trying to navigate all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know what? I didn't know you went to BC. 
Uh, yes, go Eagles. <laughs> I love how sarcastic you sound when you do I really tried to. Go really tried Eagles. to. <laughs> um, Megan, same question for you. Do you have rich friends? Like, what kind of rich are they? And how, like, close to the 1%? So when I was growing up, I thought I was rich. <laughs> then And then I started doing comedy and I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> um, and so it was growing up, I was probably the rich friend and like my friends were the rich friends, but we were very specifically Indiana rich. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Purdue, which it does not have a ton of rich people. You know, it's an, an ag school, but there are super, super rich kids that come there from abroad to be in the engineering program and aeronautical and, you know, all of those things. But I was still sort of in my bubble But I realized pretty quickly, oh, I'm not the type of rich where my parents pay my rent. Mm. I'm the type of rich where if I call my parents and I have a flat tire, they can help me. Mm -hmm. And that's actually not rich. (laughs) It's it's lovely um, and it's very kind and it's very secure. But I do think getting into show business, as TN said, is very eye-opening. But I definitely grew up around people that had more money than us, but I always felt tangential to them of like, oh, I'll get the trickle down of like, we don't belong to this country club, but I get to go to the country club and I know the number to put the hot dog on. (laughs) (laughs) And so that is like even better. Like it's, what is the saying? It's like, oh, it's like great to have a friend that has a pool or great to have a friend that has a boat, Mm -hmm. but like you don't want to be the one that owns the boat. Uh Um, And so post-college, I had so little money and my friends had, you know, regular nine to fives and I was waitressing and bartending. And I would always be like, I'm going to get you back someday, (laughs) you know, like I'm going to hit it big and I'm going to, so like, let me use your tampons and we will go on a a yacht. And it's like, I still have not followed through on that, but (laughs) CJ and I were you know, lucky enough. And I have to say that too, to be able to be house hunting as of recently. And even just the suggestions people would give of where we should look for homes. Like, oh, you should look in this neighborhood in LA or this neighborhood. And I'm like, there's one neighborhood we can look in (laughs) and we can barely look in that one. And so it feels almost like you've made it and you still are so far away. Like I am middle-class in Los Angeles and middle-class in Los Angeles is is very solid, but you're surrounded by people that have so much more than you. And the generational wealth is so, so stark. And really, I've gotten to the point now where I'm open about being like, nepotism, generational wealth. Yes, I am jealous. (laughs) Like, I'm not even coming from a place of like, oh, interesting. Like, it's like, I wish that I was generationally rich and (laughs) I may force my child into being show business just so he can reap the benefits of nepotism that I never was able to. (laughs) (laughs) And that's sort of like where I'm at. And and you go, you know, I may not be able to live in Los Angeles for the rest of my life because of finances. And that's just not a reality for for a lot of the people that we know. Yeah. You're going to have to move somewhere else and drive the home prices up 
there. Like, yes, exactly. exactly. Go to Boise and be like, $600,000 for a two-bedroom house? This is amazing. How- Let's buy two. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's really wild. It's really wild. Yeah. And you brought up, like, entertainment and how many people who work in entertainment, like— their primary source of income is is somebody in their family giving them money. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they're, and that enables them to work. Alyssa, I mean, I noticed that when I started working in like media, there are so many writers who their parents co-signed. Like in New York City, you have to make 40 times rent yeah. in order to sign a lease, which, so like, let's say the average rent, it's like $4,000 a month now in Manhattan. But back then it was like $3,000 a month. In order to sign a lease, in Manhattan, you had to make $120,000. And if you didn't make that much money, you could have someone co-sign who made 80 times rent. So I knew so many people who like, I knew for a fact didn't make 40 times rent who lived by themselves in Manhattan. And so doing a little bit of napkin math, I was like, oh, so your parents make 80 times New York City rent and they co-signed your lease for you. Like that, that was like very, very stark. And but having parents that can do that and having or having like rich friends who are like, yeah, come and live in my condo really enabled a lot of people in media to get started because there are lean years when you start out. And Alyssa, I know that like the political economy also relies on people who are willing to work for free. Did you notice a lot of that also? Oh, my God. So, Tien, I don't know when you were in Brookline at BC, but I lived with four <laughs> BC law students oh my when God. I started in Brookline, uh, right near, what was that place? Koopel's Bagels? Yes. Yeah, that's where I lived. Um, oh my God. <laughs> and I was so excited to get my job working for John Kerry. And they had to clarify when they offered me the salary that it was $20,500, not $25,000. And so that was, I mean, think about that. There was there was no way, no way. I had a second job the entire time I lived in Boston. but And there's no way, even with the second job, that I could have done it without my parents helping me. Well, what do you mean helping you? Like signing leases or... No, they were like, Alyssa, we're very proud of you that you got this job. Here is a check. You need to make this check last for as long as you work for John Kerry. So it wasn't because I think only three people were supposed to live in the apartment and there were five. I never had to sign the lease on that one, but I couldn't have afforded. I mean, Tien, again, to the point about college, Brookline rent, even for five people in a three-bedroom my rent was still like six fifty a month, which when you think about the fact I made $20,000 a month, my entire paycheck that I got, I think, went to my rent. And all of my spending money was my babysitting money and my nannying money. I feel like I am coming from a place of privilege that I even knew that stand-up comedy was a career that I could pursue. Mm-hmm. Like, it just, that is privilege in and of itself to go, oh, I'm going to pursue this thing that is free. And I think the arts in general Mm -hmm. knock a lot of people out financially because it's just, they can't. And it's kind of great about, I mean, to the point is that like when you get into politics, you see so many people who are in politics are really fucking rich because you kind of have to be to be able to make that kind of money. So the unionization that's happening on Capitol Hill now in some of the congressional offices is very nice to see because- you guys, there's a lot of money in the government, and I feel like we can pay human beings more than $30,000 a year to work 12 hours a day, essentially. Oh, yeah. It seems almost like, I mean, if you enter a field like media, mm-hmm. like politics, 
like entertainment, like anybody who's trying to be an actor, it sort of fosters this culture of like gadflyism. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not somebody that has money, you have to like attach yourself to somebody that has money. And that's the way that you get access to like the ladder itself. Like there, like even when I was making the least amount of money that I ever made as a writer living in New York, I was like crashing at a friend of my boyfriend's house for the first like couple months that we were there. We still like the guy who owned Gawker Media where I worked was like a rich guy who had a beautiful apartment in Soho across from Balthazar and above the MoMA store. And he would have these big parties. And that was like where you met other people that were like doing the same thing you did. And like if... I had done something to run afoul of him or one of his rich friends that would have like endangered. It's a wrap. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, do you, do you think that the, (laughs) I guess the, the way that people are paid at entry level jobs in entertainment, politics, media, et cetera. Do you think that like enables like rich people to kind of be abusive shitheads? Yes. I think a lot of times like they don't, they don't even know that they're abusive shitheads because their whole life has been so different than ours that it's like, oh yes, there's a staff and, and they work on Christmas. Of course they want to be here. (laughs) It truly is so different. And, and I think we get a peek into it and go, what the fuck is going on? Mm -hmm. But it's, it's their normal. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a level of entitlement that is like shocking to see. Mm. Mm-hmm. And this is across all industries. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not an avid undercover boss watcher, but I've definitely <laughs> peeped my eyes on some episodes. And these CEOs who are even, these are the good ones because they're willing to go on this show at least, are like, what is, uh, this gal is great. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, your employees are people. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? They've got blood and atoms <laughs> in their body. Like they're so, their minds are so blown of like, they've got Five kids. It's like, yes, your salary is too fucking much. You know, like yes. let's spread it out a little bit, my man's. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the the rich thing. Um, I've been thinking about because I was just you know traveling for a couple weeks in California, and it really drives home the point that rich is very relative to the place where you are. Like L.A. rich is like global rich. That's like Dubai rich. That's rich everywhere. But you can go to a place like a small town on the coast and the person that owns the biggest house might just be someone who bought the house 40 years ago and has been like very responsible um, and kept it up. And that's just where they live. And they just happen to own the biggest house in town because maybe the town grew up around them. And also, you know, I do this thing where I'll open up Zillow wherever I'm traveling Don't do and it. be like, how much, <laughs> how much do houses cost here? I know it's so crazy because, you know, people having the biggest house in a lower cost of living area are rich there. But if they try to move to a higher cost of living area, like New York City, I'm trying to think of it, the San Francisco, even Seattle, they would not be rich anymore. Um, they would no longer be the rich friends. I remember the first time I was really aware of how much money people had was when I went off to Notre Dame for my freshman yeah. year of college. It's Same. college. It's college. Because you get out of your bubble. You get out of your bubble. You're out of your neighborhood and you get a sense of like, oh, you know, I had uh, 
I knew somebody whose parents just like paid for college. She didn't qualify for financial aid. And it was all like need-based at my school. So her parents just wrote a $50,000 check every year and that was okay. Like what? It blew my mind that people could like write checks that big. And um, yeah, and 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 sometimes it would be like, we're going to go on a trip. Oh, we're going up to Canada this weekend. Do you want to come with? Or we're going to do this real quick. And the understanding of, oh, I can't do the things that that all of you can do because I don't have as much money. That was like very, very stark. Megan, I wonder if you have like right now, I mean, we're we're like older and probably a little less awkward around money now. Do you have any friends that are like super rich? And when you hang out with them, what is that like? Like LA rich? You know, I honestly have cut those people out. No, I, uh, <laughs> there's definitely people that are, that are super rich. I, I also think like, as I've gotten older, you really, and now it's a hundred percent like our money or whatever that you, you realize how differently people want to spend their money. And so there'll be, I have friends that we maybe have the same sort of finances or in the same place and, and they're willing to spend so much on X that I go, I would never. And then they think the way that I spend money is like, you know, like I, I like to, first class. Um, and it's like, I'm, then I'll just not go someplace. Like if it's like, if it's not a possibility for me to do that, then I'm like, then I'm not going. Um, because I'm just like, the travel is so terrible that it like, I need to at least have it be a little less terrible. And I know that that's baffling, but I'm like, oh, thank goodness. I recently learned someone close to me that I love is rich. Oh, it's secret rich. Not even secret rich. Just, I didn't have my eyes fully open. And they weren't hiding it, but I was like, wow, wow. Okay. And then I started like putting the pieces back together and I go, that makes sense now. That makes sense now. (laughs) And then also like, I want this. Like, how how can I get them to send me some lobsters, you know, like kind of like, oh, that makes sense why they've done these kind things for me. But also... Hmm, I think they could have gotten Conrad a bigger present, you know, like that, like that sort of. Um, but I have a friend who got rich overnight too, mm-hmm. and we all like knew it. And it's so, you know, it's inspirational mm-hmm. to go, wow, this could happen. Mm-hmm. But it's also like, oh wow, she's kind of leaving us in the dust. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can create a difficult dynamic, I think, in a relationship for sure of like, are they going to pay for everybody or is it going to, they're going to pay for more and we're going to pay what we can? Like, how do you navigate kind of the situation as an adult when it's not parents' money, when it's someone's hard earned money? I think that's a little bit more sensitive. Mm -hmm. Something super interesting that, that came out earlier this year was analysis of data around rich friends and poor kids. And this analysis found that if you're a lower income, middle-class person, having rich friends can actually give you a boost in class mobility, which I found super fascinating. Alyssa, what did you make of that data point? It makes sense, right? It's like, if you have a super rich friend, You are probably exposed to different things. You're welcomed into different environments and you get a sense of what is possible, right? So I think it's like all of us have, I think, an example of going to college and realizing 
that there are some really rich people out there. I mean, my growing up, I was in a very, very, very working class town. And I remember my first week, rotten bitch, second floor Chittenden Hall, University of Vermont was like, Alyssa, who was the richest person in your town? As if I could have never been around a rich (gasps) person. They were bullying you? Yes, because I was such a hick. Well, here's the truth. When she asked the question, I was like, I think it would be the horse doctor. And they were like, what? I was like, you know, the equine vet. I think they had two Suburbans. I think they were probably the richest people. And Suburbans back in 92 or whatever were very different than they are now. They were actual like work vehicles. And so I think that You know, it wasn't until I went to college and even got into politics and was around really, really rich people that I was like, ah, who knew? You know, who knew these opportunities existed? Some of which you can pursue without being wealthy, but you might not know about because you've never been exposed to them. So Mm -hmm. I think it's like, I think a great example is something like an internship, so many of which are now paid, but something that in high school, I didn't know what internships were. I didn't know that that was an option. And the truth is by being around people who talked about them because they could, because they, they could, they didn't have to worry about paying for, you know, their life while they were in the internship. I was like, well, I can do that. I can figure it out. And even though my parents did not fork over a big check for me to take an internship, Guess what? I was the maitre d' at Lunig's on Church Street in Burlington. I babysat out in, what the, Culver? I don't remember the name of the town. It was, began with a C. But I figured it out, you know. But the idea of even pursuing it probably wouldn't have occurred to me had I not heard these people for whom it was just a part of their, of course, part of their college experience is something they were going to do. So I think mm-hmm. that the the study, rather, made good sense to me. Mm-hmm. I've seen people attach themselves to rich Mm -hmm. people for this exact purpose, but then it begs the question is, what if there's no rich people around you? Mm -hmm. So then you're just left out in the, who do you attach Mm -hmm. to? Mm-hmm. Um, the equine doctor. Uh, well, what if you don't know any horses? Listen, it's not easy. Also, some of those equine people can be very snotty. <laughs> Just, oh, oh, yeah. The horse people. If someone likes horses, you go, cha-ching, I'll attach to you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I was going to say, if someone likes horses, do not make any jokes about people who like horses around them. Because uh, no. they yeah, do don't even not, use glue. Do not like <laughs> horses Horse people jokes. That is one of the main things that horse people don't like is jokes about horse people. <laughs> Have you ever been the rich friend, Tian? Have you ever like been like, oh, I'm I'm the rich friend and this is a new thing I'm feeling? I I honestly, it's a new thing that I'm feeling since being on How I Met Your Father. And I am trying to just like, return very generous things that friends of mine have been able to like with with the study of like being, you know, across class. Like I think I benefited from that because when I first moved to Chicago, I stayed with friends and slept in their couches, crashed on like they were able to like pay rent and they didn't make me pay rent. Like these were some of the sort of trickle down benefits that I had from that. So I'm hoping to like return the favor. Uh, I'm trying to. And I think, you know, in Working in entertainment, you have a lot of friends and I've been on the receiving end of this generosity of just like when your friends make it, there are other people that are still trying to figure it out. And it's, and you know how hard it is to be at that spot where like jobs become quiet. And so I am that rich friend to some groups of my friends right now. And I'm getting dinners every now and then. (laughs) Like I'm, 
you know, just trying to kind of pay it forward in the way that people have been so generous to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is, I guess, the, the best thing that you can do when you're the rich person is try to be like mindful. One thing that I have tried not to be, and I'm, again, I'm in Los Angeles, so I, you know, I get to to live out every single place on the, on the socioeconomic spectrum, depending on what neighborhood I'm in. But I remember when I was in college or right after college and I didn't have any money and I didn't have any help. I remember how demoralizing and like embarrassed I would feel when a, a rich friend would want to do something and I couldn't do it because of money. Like the assumption that I could do it was like, oh, you think I'm rich, but I'm not. It brought up all these like feelings of of shame and inadequacy when in fact, like a lot of your economic circumstances are due to factors totally beyond your control. And so now whenever I'm in a situation where like, you know, I'm higher income significantly than a person I'm spending time with, I really try to think about whether or not I'm pushing them into that space mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I used to hate yeah. to go into. Alyssa, you're nodding. I would love to hear. Yeah, your no, I just think that there are like lots of good kinds of rich people, right? And they're mm-hmm. bad rich people. And the really good rich friends are the ones who fucking take a beat and think about it. Mm-hmm. And if I am the rich friend in an instant and I want to do something and I want that person to come with me and do it with me, it's like, you know what? I want to go see Stevie Nicks. The tickets are ridiculous. I got you one. It's an early birthday present. Like you do something that makes them not feel less than and just like include them in the experience that you want to have. And I just think that like assuming it's like if you really want to do something, I just think that like there was no worse feeling than when people would be like, oh, hey, we're all going to Barbados. So, you know, do you want to come? And it's like, in what fucking world do you think I can afford to go to fucking Barbados at age 22? Do you know what I mean? Like, like it was almost fantastical. It made me think less of them. I was like, uh, shouldn't you be saving your money? That's what my parents told me I should be doing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's like to me as an adult, I have some really fucking rich friends. And the best one, my fave, my all-time fave, I I saw how much she was, I mean, she had told me how much she was making at her job, but it was reported in the Financial Times. And I just sent her a note and I was like, for the record, to avoid any confusion going forward, dinner shall always be on you, but your jam <laughs> will always be free. And she <laughs> just like laughed, you know, and, and but then there are the people who, you know, ask you to do something beyond your means and you think it's important to them, so you do it. And then you show up and the asshole is like, do you know this outfit was like 30 grand? And all I can think is one, I'm never doing anything for you again. And second, do you know how many people you could have fed with your fucking stupid outfit? And so I just think too, like having the rich friends that you know support good causes and are very helpful to people when they can be helpful. And it's it's not the rich friend's responsibility to always pay, but I think it is the person's responsibility to know the environment they're creating mm-hmm. and to make sure that if you're really their friend, they're making you feel comfortable and in, in the environment. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, there may come a day that you need to eat them. Yeah, entirely possible. Dinner is on yes. you. And also possibly one day dinner it might is be you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do think there are people that 
it does make them uncomfortable to have people pay for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I have encountered people where it's like, oh, they just, and and I don't, and, and that, I'm not one of them. Um, so I can't understand the psyche, but like I have seen it happen and it really. But can I ask you a question? Do you think it's because of how it is offered? Do you know what I mean? Like the pity look. Do you think it is because the person gives them the look like, I know you're poorer than me, so I got it. You know? I think it absolutely could be. I think it also could just be, it maybe like confirms the self-consciousness they've been feeling mm-hmm. uh-huh. That's of like, oh, I'm not in the place I want to be. And now I'm taking, you know, we've all heard the handout. I don't want a handout. And it's like, oh, my hand is out and I will take anything. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I'm constantly asking for free things, but, <laughs> but it may just, I think it could also be people's upbringing mm-hmm. too yeah. of like, it's been pounded into them. Like nothing is free. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of like, you're always going to have to be owed something. They're going to want something from you. And I know women especially have been told that about interactions with with Mm -hmm. male counterparts, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And it is a it's a complicated space to navigate. We'll put it that way. Um, That is about all the time we have for this rich friends conversation. Hopefully the next time we talk, all of you will have yachts and you will invite me onto them. And if I have a yacht, you will be invited onto mine. I can't imagine ever buying a yacht. This seems like a waste of money. But uh, regardless, uh, you can come to my, uh, let's see, uh, pool deck. How about that? If I if I become the rich friend. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, Sani Petty. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee.
All right. We've almost reached the end of the show, but not quite. It is time for Sanity Corner slash I Feel Petty, a.k.a. Sanny Petty. Let's get started. Uh, I'm going to go first because I feel very strongly about this, and I know Hmm. it's going to make a lot of people mad. So maybe by the end of the episode, people will have forgotten that I said this thing. If the rest of you have something better to say, which I'm hoping. Uh, I don't like cemeteries, and I'm not not saying that— I'm not saying that because, no, no, I love a cemetery as like a piece of like, you know, oh, cool. It's a peaceful place, but what a terrible use of land. What a terrible use of land, especially in dense areas with housing shortages. You're going to give a bunch of prime real estate to dead people. Dead people who have been embalmed with chemicals that are aggressively harmful to the environment. We're going to preserve dead people and we're going to put them in these high demand spaces, mausoleums, whatever. And I don't care how beautiful the carving is. I don't care about how spooky the gravestone is. Cemeteries in high population density areas with housing shortages should not exist. Um, They're bad. (laughs) Get them. (laughs) Dig them up. Aaron says, dig them up. I don't care if they all haunt me. I am saying, like, there's this giant cemetery in Brooklyn, and I'm sure when it was- Oh, yeah. That, that yeah. Not not Greenwood, the one that you pass on the way up yes. the- that, I yes. knew that's what you're talking about. Yeah, Gre- Greenwood <laughs> I is, did too. I did too. Yeah, I used to live near Greenwood, and, and it was like before there was like a scary clown. Anyway, I'll talk more about that in a, in a future episode. But yeah, I think, I think that cemeteries in high-density urban areas are- a wasteful use of land. And I think that embalming people before they are put into the ground is a very passe thing to do. And when I die, I would like to be made into compost. Um, And that's, it doesn't make me better than you. It makes me grosser. Uh, I just want to be made into a pile of dirt and don't put me in a cemetery. Put me on like some have stuff grow out of me. I don't want to be embalmed. It's creepy. Anyway, I'm I'm into this. I, I agree. agree. Though it's yeah, we're all yeah, we're all on your Good. side. Good. <laughs> this is not creepy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I will not. I'll be tossed somewhere. And my partner and I were looking for like a picnic place. We were on vacation. We were looking for like a place to picnic, and we looked up a park, and we drove there, and it was a cemetery. So it was. <laughs> I agree with you. Get rid of them all. Oh yeah, I was gonna say it's it's like we don't I don't want to like dig up people's relatives because I understand the like you know. But you're saying no, no more. more, no more, no more. We got to put a, a moratorium, a moratorium yeah. on the mortuary. Ooh. Um, I think you are correct. Yeah, put and put a pause on it because as it stands now, the, I'll drive by cemeteries and I'm like, this is land that is either arable or should be used for something else. It's, this could be a pool. Yeah, it could be a huge pool. It's like, also, <laughs> we could do like Jewish tradition, which is they are not embalmed. They are returned to the soil as it is intended. And then it decomposes. And it's essentially your composting situation, Erin. Yeah, I like that too. But then can we build on top of this? So that's <laughs> what I want. I want to be like buried on my, like my husband is Jewish and he's like, just roll me down the hill when my time comes. And I was like, cool, I'll do that. And then when I'm dead, they can cremate me and toss me on top of you. We'll be together forever. You know, it's nice. I'm picturing that. (laughs) Yeah. Just die in a log rolling position though, because it'd be hard. Yeah. Once rigor mortis sets in, it's like hard to roll them. So it gets weird. But Aaron, when you first said cemeteries, I would, that you, that you objected to them. I was like, shit, I'm glad I didn't send you that post about the cemetery crawl happening in my town right around Halloween. (laughs) Oh no. I love old cemeteries. 
That's cool. Oh, yeah. There's so many revolutionary people buried up here that they're like cemetery crawls. Are you drinking on this crawl? Yeah, you do whatever you want. Well, I hope not whatever you want. It's my little giant. They would have wanted that. Yeah. <laughs> because we know people got some kids. There's some crazy people out there. I'm going to Hollywood Cemetery. I think that's what it's called, yeah. Hollywood Forever Cemetery, to um, for a screening of The Thing this weekend. <laughs> so That's going to be so fun. Oh, have you seen The Thing before? I've not. I've seen The Fog, so I'm uh, familiar with his work. Okay, but. The Thing is great. It's great. Okay, I'm excited. Yeah, I mean, we're, it's a movie theater. They turned the cemetery into a movie theater. Yeah, yeah. I was supposed to see Purple Rain there, but then I had to go somewhere. It's, I was sad. But um, but yeah, Hollywood Forever Cemetery is great. I love spooky old cemeteries. I think that if you're going to go on a revolutionary cemetery tour, you should drink because everybody was low-key drunk on apple cider back during revolutionary <laughs> war times, including the children. So yeah, that sounds super fun. And do send me pictures. But just don't, like, we don't need any more, like, urban center cemeteries. Got to put them elsewhere. I agree. I agree. Okay. Tien. Sure. I'll go. Sanity Corner or Petty this week? Uh, Maybe like a little bit of both. A little bit of both. I'm going to okay. stay in spooky season. I'm feeling part of staying sane, watching a bunch of old classic scary movies and new ones. And I feel petty about all the people who are hating on Hocus Pocus 2. I thank you. Bravo. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just saying anyone who's hating on Hocus Pocus 2 is not seeing the feminist message of Hocus Pocus 2, okay? Have you watched the original recently? Yes. No. It's pretty fucked up. And it's like mean to the witches. I'm sorry. I'm saying it. It's mean to the witches. And I love that this new Hocus Pocus 2 is trying to like kind of take this the Salem witch trial story and actually talk about how these women were like persecuted. And I think it's wonderful. Some of the song moments are a little cringe, but in that way, that's fun and amazing. <laughs> it's Bette Midler and Sarah Jessica Parker is amazing as always. And so is Kathy and Jimmy. I love the group of female friends. There's no romantic, boring virgin story element as a part of it. <laughs> if we're talking based purely on movie, like how good it is, I think Hocus Pocus 2 is better than the original Hocus Pocus. There. I said it. Wow. I, That's I an endorsement. Wow. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it too. I loved it. I thought it was really fun. Me too. Okay. Why are people hating on it? Well, I've seen people online because once I enjoy something, I go look it up on Twitter, you know? Um, and so I saw people being like, this woke propaganda. And I'm like, yes, I truly don't, I don't know what you're talking it. about. Like, it's, <laughs> li- it's a fictional film about witches. Um, but yeah. Well, and you saw the woman who thinks there's a news story, a gal in Texas. So, and she's like, Hocus Pocus 2 is sucking children's souls oh. for the devil. And they put this on the news. <laughs> okay. Okay. Interesting choice. Yeah. So that's good. So that's a voter. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but depending on where you live, you could cancel her out. Just You're think right. Of that. Like Absolutely. there is yes. there is a person out there whose vote you will cancel out, and you can picture that person yes. when you go to I'm vote. mostly voting to cancel out Hocus Pocus two haters. Okay. Yes. Okay. And that's witchcraft at its finest. That, that is witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> um Alyssa, are you feeling petty this week or do you have a sanity corner? I feel petty, but I have a sanity wraparound. Nice. Okay, you guys. On Sunday morning, I made the mistake of bending over to pick out pick up an eight pack of paper towels too quickly, which 
prompted me to see stars, collapse to the ground, and be unable to move for a fair amount of time. Okay. Now I'm like, okay, so this is, this is getting older. Now I didn't move quickly. The package wasn't heavy. I don't know why it happened, but then follow up 48 hours later, still in a lot of pain, a lot of a leave. I get my period. I am not a happy person until here's the sanity wraparound. And I'm going to show you though. Our listeners will not see. you guys. I am covered in heat patches. I have heat patches all over me. Okay, Alyssa just showed us her ass. I just showed them my buttocks. And you know that I run hot and that middle age has made me hotter. And for some reason, the hot patches are only warming the appropriate parts of my back and my uterus. And I just want to say a thank you to the Salon Paws Lidocaine Patch. (laughs) <laughs> and the Cora tampon brand womb patch that is that has made me uh, utterly able fun- to function. They both helped me immensely. I was back on my feet with the help of some, you know, a leave. But um, yeah, so anyway, I was like, I, you know, when you are really like down in the dumps and you're like, no one can fucking help me. Well, the they helped me. And so I just, I was like, you know what? This is a very sunny upside story. So I thought I'd share. Man, when the bar is a product working as it should, making us happy. Or I guess maybe that it was invented. Yeah. You know, I like, thank you. Thank you for putting the, because the actual regular salon pause did not work, but the one with lidocaine worked. Nice. Nice. Noted. I love those heat packs. And I'm always wondering, like, Kind of like, you know, internet cables in the ocean. How does it work? <laughs> don't want to know. Don't, don't want to know. Listen, if you're listening to this episode, don't tell me how ill I'm going to eventually get from the <laughs> no. hot patch. Yeah. No, just let, like, let, let her have this time. To let feel me just feel better. Yeah. Thank you so much. Totally. totally. Um, Megan. You know, I'm feeling petty. Um, <laughs> so I am now a woman out in the world with a child and Uh in Los Angeles, no one cares. Um, If anything, they're mad at me. Yeah. They're they're super mad. mad. They're so mad. And I said, Oh, you guys talk a lot about voting. Well, I made a voter. So, (laughs) What is really, and this is like so petty and Aaron, I I bet you don't feel this way because you're a more evolved person than me, (laughs) but I will, I will be out. And I think my baby is cute and objectively. Agreed. Objectively, objectively, objectively cute. And, yeah. And the thing is, I think all babies are cute. Like I truly love all that's babies. That's not true. Mm, that's not true. <clears throat> that's not true. No, I know. But like I but I, I'm saying I'm coming from a place of like my maybe I'm coming from a place of like I love babies. Like I will find one and I go, I love you, even if you're the ugliest hammerhead shark I've ever seen. So <laughs> but I'll be out. And some people glance at him and nothing. And some people ignore him. And that's fine. The people that drive me insane, they will look at him. Their face will change, not at all. And then they'll look away. And it's like, what is wrong with you? Like, you don't see a tiny little soul and at least like an eyebrow, like (laughs) even a frown would be better than just nothing. (laughs) To see a baby in the wild and have zero reaction you are soulless. You hate Hocus Pocus too. <laughs> you are a bad person. And and it's like, you can't, I would rather you 
hear him and then turn around and walk away than to glance at him and just feel nothing. And and sometimes it's like, it's baffling. It's just truly, I, I don't even know how it's possible. It defies reason. It defies reason. Oh man. Walking with a baby and a dog. Uh, I would say 75% more of the time people are reacting positively to the dog. To the dog. It's insane. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's so crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Juniper's little I yes. can't imagine. Yeah. I smile just when I look at your babies on Instagram. Yeah, I get same. a smile on my face. Oh, God. She, Thank you. Um, it's true. Just know every time you post that yeah, little just buddy. Agreed. I'm just I'm I'm using my fingers to make his cheeks bigger. <laughs> I don't. I don't have to do that with Juniper because her cheeks She's are She's got big. big old cheeks. Megan, when you're posting your baby, I'm frowning. Okay, I'm yeah, frowning. Yeah, and that's, I'm that's away. accepted. At least you're having a human reaction. <laughs> but to just go, he does nothing for me. It's like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> no, your baby is so cute. And I Thank like when you. you dress them up in little jerseys and sportswear. Yeah, the jerseys are cute. The jerseys are cute. Thanks. Before I had a kid, I, like, before I was pregnant, I thought people who, like, dressed their babies up and stuff, I was like, that's silly. The baby doesn't know. That's the point. Now it's like, no, it's for yeah. me. It's 100%. for the parents. It's for everyone else. Like, sometimes, like, the little outfit is the happiest moment of the day when you, like, finish oh dressing gosh. them up and you're like, oh. Look at you. Oh, (laughs) the best part is that they don't know. You know, like you can't be mad at us. It's like, are you in a onesie? Are you an elephant? You don't know. (laughs) Mama knows. Mama knows. (laughs) Oh, man. Good sanity corners. Good petties. Good episode all around. That's all the time we have. Tien and Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Alyssa, thank you for being my ride or die. Thank you to Beto O'Rourke for being oh, the first no. guy ever we interviewed on this show. And thanks to all wow. of you, the listeners. Um, there'll be more hysteria for you next week, and it will be live. Alyssa and I are going to do a live ah! show, and we're going to be seeing each other in person. Reunited. Reunited. Reunited, and I hope it feels as good as I'm imagining it's going to be. I'm from another planet. This nation Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our senior producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer. And Fiona Pastana is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are the sound engineers. And our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroote. 